Like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Is your home, is your home one that's readily recognized as a place where Christians live? Perhaps, perhaps there are tangible signs around your home that preserve some memory of God's story of salvation as told by Jesus. Uh, a picture, an icon, an image, a star of David, a crucifix, a cross without a corpus. Generations ago, you might have found a, a family Bible in the foyer. But, per, but perhaps it's the, it's the practice of the Christian faith that marks your household as one in which Christians take part. The ready conversation with and about God, fluency in the language of the faith, times of prayer, family devotions, the giving of alms for the poor, the work for the undoing of unjust social structures, the, the study of scripture together, maybe the support of the saints. Maybe yours is a home that frequently shows hospitality to strangers, entertaining angels unawares. Maybe your home is recognized as a place for Christians by the acts of mercy you perform. Maybe you celebrate the mystery of God in your home in the overt service of one another as you would serve Christ. The practice of your home, it may be spirit-filled, in the way that the wind of the Spirit blows where it will, but at some point a decision is made by the inhabitants of a dwelling, even of the inhabitants who may be of many faith persuasions, but because you are there in a multi-faith home, it marks it as Christian in a peculiar way to dedicate that home to God with distinction, to say this place, this house, this home will be known as a dwelling where the light of Christ shines. This is a place built on the living stone that is Christ. Throughout the, the witness of Scripture, God acts in a particular and peculiar way and asks the same of those who would follow his Son as Lord and Savior. If the injunctions of the Sermon on the Mount do not translate easily as a guide for Christian living for you, if you're able to set them aside as generic, a generic guide to the generic spiritual life or perhaps simply too, too tall an order to accomplish, then maybe it's the sayings of Jesus, the specific sayings of Jesus that help. Though I, I believe in some ways they are even yet more difficult to navigate. Think, for example, of Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus comes with a particular cost. Family will be characterized by baptism, not by bloodlines, not by birthright. Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus says, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. Being a disciple of Jesus carries with it an immediacy of being that asks you to forsake even the most solemn of your presumed obligations. Later in that same chapter, Jesus says again, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus 
requires that you be prepared to lay down your life for a friend, for a spouse, for a neighbor, for a stranger. Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus continues, so therefore none of you, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Let's go. Now there's one. You cannot be my disciple. So being a disciple of Jesus carries with it a particular scandal, the recognition that this world is not your home. You walk as one, though on a journey, who wanders, ever dependent on God as your guide and as your sustenance. And then as we heard last week with the example of Jesus as good shepherd, uh, uh, we, we hear we hear his voice and our hearts somehow are tuned to the recognition of God. So we set aside, in essence, all that is dear, uh, all, all that is familiar, all, all that would protect us for the recognition of God. We tune our ears and our hearts to the voice of God. Now, in the verses leading up to the ones that were read today in the gospel lesson, Jesus has spoken of and experienced twice betrayal. Judas has betrayed our Lord at table with the disciples, and Peter, the one on whom Christ intends to build his church, has pledged his life to Jesus only to have his coming denial foretold. It's for good cause that Jesus continues his address and says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I hear that and I think, what can you possibly mean, Jesus? The, the, the world is coming apart for your disciples. The world is coming apart for us. Two of the disciples' intimates are, are proving unfaithful. Judgment seems certain. This is the hope of heaven. Christ's arrest is just around the corner. Everything is breaking apart. You know where I'm going, says Jesus in response to my anxiety. There's only one other spot in all of the New Testament where Jesus speaks of his father's house. That's John chapter 2. And when he does that, it's in reference to the temple. His father's house, the temple, is that place where heaven and earth mystically meet. He's going to that place where heaven and earth will forever meet and in that place there are many rooms, many mansions, many places, plenty good room for all, for everyone. I want to go too, says Thomas. Would you show us the way? Setting up the brilliant echo in this morning's collect of the day. And though... As St. John Chrysostom notes, Jesus does not speak his answer in the public square, but rather only to those, almost in a whisper that he knows most intimately. He says plainly and succinctly, clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in the same way that all the nations of the world would now be blessed in the same way that how many? 
all the nations of the world, how many? One more time. That's right. All the nations of the world will be blessed in Abraham, so now will earth and heaven forever meet so that everyone, everyone, everyone might gather in the house with mansions and plenty good room towards which Jesus is leading. Mystics get this. Literalists do not. Thomas Akempis, 15th century English cleric, ascetic, mystic, and martyr, he comments on these words of Jesus with great passion. He says, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. It is the particularity of Christ's leadership that takes us to the Father's house, to the temple, to that place where heaven and earth meet. It's the unique character of Christ's being, his life, his death, his resurrection, that leads us on to the abundant life. Now, has, has the church arrogantly held Christ's affirmation that he's the way, the life, and the truth over the heads of many for centuries in the past? Yes. Will the church be judged for this? Absolutely. But I say, forsake the misuse of the text, not the text itself. To see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life asks us to take up the practices of discipleship, the marks of Christianity, the devotion to Christ as Savior, understanding that by this witness and by this love, the whole world may see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up. So when you, when you go home this afternoon, look carefully at the entrance to your dwelling. Look carefully at the practices of, that members of your household embrace. Will the stranger know they've approached a home where Christians live? Are there peculiar practices of prayer, of Bible study, acts of mercy, the work to, to tear down the unjust structures of society that mark your home, your house, as a place where Christians are to assemble. Seek these practices out. Embrace them. Become disciplined in them. That, through your witness, your home may be marked as a place where the disciples of Christ are known to live. Amen.